Romans 12 this morning. If you need a Bible, we would be glad to give you one. Romans 12. We made it through two verses last week. We're going to tackle three times that many this morning. It's going to get crazy. It's Palm Sunday, which, which historically we don't make a, a big observance. But it is worth noting. It's worth pausing, remembering that some 1,990 years ago, give or take, this Sunday morning, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Jesus entered Jerusalem and fulfilled prophecy. He entered Jerusalem on the day that the angel told Daniel that he would. He entered Jerusalem the way that Zechariah said that he would some 500 years earlier. He entered Jerusalem to people laying down palm branches before him and shouting, Hosanna, shouting the words of Psalm 18, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. He entered Jerusalem to people declaring that he was who he said he was, that he was the Messiah of Israel. By the end of that week, the crowd, many of those same people undoubtedly were shouting, not Hosanna, but crucify him. And acquiescing to the crowd's demands, capitulating to Israel's leadership, Pilate, the Roman governor over Judea, ordered Jesus put to death. And we know it wasn't a vain death. It wasn't an empty death. By every measure possible, it was an extraordinary death. It was the most important death in the history of the universe. And over the course of this letter... Over these past 11 chapters, Paul has been explaining to us, he's been describing to us, you and me, the church, what we have and who we are as a result of that death. We summarized a few of those things. We pulled together 11 chapters of Paul's teaching last week, and we said, wow, Paul has been doing a whole systematic theology of salvation. He's been talking about justification, just as if we've never sinned. Because the blood of Jesus Christ pays for our sins, atones for our sins. Sanctification. Identification. We identify with Jesus. He identifies with us. We're adopted into God's family. Joint heirs with Christ. We said, hey, Paul's told us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He promises no separation eternally for those who trust in Jesus. We look forward to Jesus bringing us home to be his bride, to glorification, and between now and then, we have every consideration. God loves us like a father. A hair doesn't drop from our head that he doesn't know, that he doesn't see, that he doesn't care. And we said, wow, that's all part of our redemption. It's not everything that our redemption is, but boy, that's a lot. And our redemption is even more. For 11 chapters, Paul's been laying out these, these promises that we can claim, promises that we can rest in, promises that we can delight in. If we repent of living for ourselves, if we confess that we're sinners, if we ask Jesus to be our Savior. And I think most of us this morning have. If you haven't, if you're here this morning and you haven't decided what to do with Jesus, if you haven't made up your mind about what the cross means, can, can, can we talk? 
And I mean that. I'm going to be parked up here after service. And, and, and if, if there's something standing between you and Jesus, if there's, keeping, if there's something keeping you from putting your trust in him, I don't want to badger you or bully you, but, but if there's a reason that you're saying no and yet you're still here, that tells me that you've got a question. So, so let me see if I've got an answer. Let's see together if God's word has an answer. But for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus... Let's do a big, quick, quick recap of where we were last week. Romans 12.1, Paul takes everything he's been saying about our salvation, everything he's been talking about for 11 chapters, justified, sanctified, we're going to be glorified, all of it, and he says, therefore, therefore, because all of that is true, because 11 chapters of this, of this letter are real, because it's true, because that's who we are, because that's who Jesus is, because that's what Jesus did. Therefore, therefore what, Paul? Therefore, worship. And Paul tells us what that means. He says, therefore, verse 1, present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Say to God, here I am. Use me. Here I am to worship have your way with me. Live your life through me. Love people through me. How do we do that? What, what, what does that look like? Paul talked about that too. We're, we're reviewing because everything we're going to talk about for the next four chapters is built on this foundation. Jesus loved us on the cross, gave his life for us. So in response, so in response to who he is, in response to what he revealed about the depth of his love, in response to what he did, in response to what he's made us, we worship. He gave his life for us. We live our lives for him, which is a great song lyric, but it doesn't tell us how to do it because we haven't gotten to verse 2 yet. Verse 2 is where Paul tells us how to worship. Verse 1, he tells us why. He tells us what worship is. Verse 2, he tells us how. He gives us the key to living our lives for him. He says, stop being conformed to this world. Start being transformed. Let God renew your minds. Stop thinking like the world. Start thinking like God. Stop listening to the demands of your flesh. Start obeying God's word as illuminated by his spirit. And in telling us that, in giving us, verse 2, Paul lays out a, a, a template, a pattern. A, a, I hesitate to, the, to use the word formula, but that's kind of what it is, that he's going to follow for the next four chapters. Worship, he's going to say again and again, looks like not doing this. Worship is rejecting this and instead doing that. <laughs> Worship is, is tearing out this page from the world's playbook and replacing it with this page from God's playbook. Worship is, is stop thinking like a human with a sin nature and put on the mind of Christ. If, if that has you doing 90s flashbacks, some of you, if that's bringing WWJD back to you, what would Jesus do? You're not wrong. It's the same kind of idea. And if you're twitching and saying, ooh, that, that, that got gross after a while, yeah, you're not wrong about that either. The commercialism of the slogan was disgusting after a while, but, but, but there was a good idea at the heart of that. Not a perfect idea, but a sound idea. Put on the mind of Christ. 
Don't act like the world. Don't follow the world's cues. Live for God by thinking like God and by serving like Jesus. So over the next four chapters, Paul's going to give us a couple dozen WWJDs. This, this is where we're going. He's already told us why we worship Jesus. So check that box. He's already told us what worship is. Present yourselves a living sacrifice. Check that box. He's done with that. He's not going to talk about those things for a while. Now he's going to get into the specifics of how we worship. And big picture, yeah, it's letting God reprogram our minds. It's letting God override the world's programming, override factory settings. It's letting God reprogram our minds to think like him and to serve like Jesus. For example, and that's where we are now. That's, that's what we're getting into this week. Everything up to this point, review. Now we're going to push forward. How do we worship? I get it. It's, it's putting off the, the earthly mind, the worldly mind, the carnal mind, and it's putting on the mind of Christ. But how do we do that? Paul's going to say, okay, for example, verse 3, for example, I say through grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, to the church, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but instead think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a member of faith. For as we have many members in one body, we've got toes, hands, eyes, ears, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, the church, being many members, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, we don't all have the same gifts, but whatever gifts we have, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And Paul's just getting warmed up, but we're going to pause there because in six verses, Paul just gave us three things to look at, three things to talk about, three examples of how we can stop being conformed to the world and start worshiping by trading out how we used to think for how God is calling us to think. Three points this morning. Three exchanges we can make because Jesus made the great exchange with us. He traded his righteousness for our sin. And he's saying, hey, trade my mind for, for your mind. Let's complete the deal. Let's keep this thing going. Three exchanges, three trades we can make. Three ways to think like God. The first, trade ambition for humility. That's the first thing Jesus said. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to, wrote Paul. Think soberly, by which he means think, think and see yourself accurately, with humility. And of course, that's everything that Jesus teaches. That's everything Jesus tells us. Matthew 23, 11, to pick one of a dozen places we could have gone. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's Jesus 101, right? Humility. The thing is, it flies in the face of the world's teaching. It flies in the face of everything we've been trained to believe and do. It's 180 degrees away from what the world tells us, and it's, it's different than what we see even so often in the church. 20 years ago, I became assistant pastor of my home church. 
That's a long time ago. <laughs> but when I became assistant pastor back in 2003, someone gave me a book entitled 48 Laws of Power. It was actually a brother in the church. It was someone in church leadership who said, now that you've attained a position of power and influence, now you've got to leverage it, and this book will tell you how. And he gives me this book, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's rules to live by if you want to get ahead and if you don't mind stepping on people to do it. 48 laws of power, things like court attention. You're going to be judged by your appearance, so make sure you're the center of attention at all times. Get others to do your work for you, but make sure that you get all the credit. Use, I like this one, use selective honesty and generosity to disarm one strategic act of honesty will cover dozens of deceitful acts. And then he says, discover every person's thumbscrew. Find their greatest weakness, their kryptonite, and exploit it. And, and, and it goes on. And some of you are thinking, my boss must have read this book. <laughs> it's possible. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an international bestseller. It sold like a million and a half copies. Why is it so popular? Because it tells us how to do what the world says we're supposed to want to do. Get ahead. Make things happen. Look out for number one because no one else is going to. From an early age, we're taught that, aren't we? And even after we're saved, even as Christians, we still go on believing that. Or even if we, we say we don't believe it, we go on acting like that. I had a friend, this is years ago, <clears throat> who was not in leadership, but he and his family were deeply involved in the church. They were, they were part of the body life of the church, if you understand what I mean, the fabric of the church. whole family was serving, very much part of the, the fellowship. Well, one day, Dad announces that they're moving, which happens. I mean, God calls people out. But as we talked, it really quickly became clear that wasn't what was going on. I said, where are you going? He's mentions the town three states away. I said, oh, you got family there? No, it's a really good job opportunity. I said, interesting. Weren't you just telling me how much you loved your job? He said, oh, I do, but this is an opportunity to get ahead. I said, oh. So, so have you checked out churches down there? Is that a, fellow, a fellowship you're going to get plugged into? Yeah. You know, we'll find something. Or, or we'll just do church online. And so I, I, I see where this is going, and I decide to poke a little bit. I said, what prompted this? He said, I told you, it's an opportunity to get ahead. If you're, still stand, if, you're, if you're standing still, you're falling behind. Oh. And then what happens? Well, you stop moving, you stay stuck. If I don't say yes to this opportunity, another one might not come along. And I said, would that be so very bad? Because I knew the family well. I knew that dad was making good bucks, had great benefits, had a, they objectively had a fantastic house in one of the best school districts, didn't travel at all. He was home with his family every night. The new job was going to be like 50% travel. And, and the church, they, they, they would say every, at every opportunity how much the church family that they were a part of meant to him. And so I said, do you really want to give all that up? He said, well, it'll be an adjustment. Yeah, we'll miss the church a lot, but you got to keep moving. Got to keep moving. Got to remember what's next is what's next. If you want to get ahead, you got to... And, and he walks away. And, and the family's had trial after trial since then, but that's not the point. The point is, is it's just it, it's how ingrained in us 
Got to make things happen. Got to get ahead. Number two is the first loser. Except what did Jesus say? Mark 9.35, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. If we want to think like Jesus, we've got to think like that. If anyone desires to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He must pursue not ambition, but humility. And Jesus could say that because Jesus did that, didn't he? Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us about the humility that Jesus pursued. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. How did Paul just describe Jesus? Tell me in one word. Humility. Humility in his incarnation. He set aside the privileges and prerogatives of divinity and crammed himself into a human body. Humility in his commission, in his ministry. In his life was a life of prayer and dependency. The miracles that he did, he did by faith. He did through the power of the Holy Spirit and not in his own. Humility in ministry. Humility in his execution. Put to death not with dignity, but tortured and brutally executed as a criminal. All for the exaltation that would come later. Humility is literally who Jesus was, who Jesus is. If you want to read more on the subject, I can't recommend highly enough a book by Andrew Murray. You know that I love Andrew Murray. Uh, guys, some of us have gone through Absolute Surrender, which is a must-read. That's on my read-it-once-a-year list. Ladies, I think some of you went through uh, With Christ in the School of Prayer a couple years ago. In his book, Humility, Andrew Murray points out that, that humility is the chief quality, the defining characteristic, the, the essence of everything that Jesus is. Every time we look at Jesus, we see humility. Humility is who he is. Humility is what he calls us to pursue. Every time we look at Jesus, we see humility. Every time, listen, every time Jesus looks at us, he hopes to see that same humility shining back, reflected back as we choose his thoughts over our thoughts, his way of life over our way of life, as we choose serving God and others over pride and ambition, as we reject advancing ourselves in favor of taking the last seat, as we choose to not be filled up with the accomplishments of the world, but rather to be emptied so that we can be filled with God's love and mercy to share with the world, to carry to the world. That's what our lives in heaven are going to be about. Our lives in heaven, Murray says, will be lives of humility. Humility as it is the mark of Christ, the heavenly, will be the one standard of glory in heaven. The lowliest will be the nearest to God. That's what Jesus told James and John, right? When they were arguing about who was going to be the, the, the highest in the kingdom. The primacy in the church is promised to the loudest, to the strongest, to the boldest. No, to the humblest. Our lives in heaven will be lives of humility, worship 
in this life is choosing to live in that Christ-like humility today. Exchange number one that Paul is proposing, trade ambition for humility. Exchange number two, the second way God proposes that, or sorry, Paul proposes that we let God reprogram our minds, trade isolation for community. He talks about that starting in verse four. We have many members in one body, but all the members don't have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We are, Paul just said, a community, called to be a community. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Reject isolationism and self-sufficiency, Paul says, for example, in favor of fellowship and community. And we've talked about this before. We've talked before about how that call of God on our lives, that commandment, because that's what it is, wars with our Midwestern value system, because it does, right? I talked to someone yesterday, stood in my kitchen, and, and he talked about how his family, his extended family is moving. They're buying land out in the country somewhere, I forget where. They're going to buy a big old piece of property as far from people as they can find, park mobile homes there, and live off the grid, live self-sufficiently. And my friend was asking, so exactly how far from you know, towns will we be as far as we can get? What about friends, he asks. The answer why do you want friends? Friends are a dangerous illusion. Right? And, and, and it sounds, it, we, we can say, ooh, no. We, 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 we recoil when, it, when, when we hear it that way. But our society teaches that. We're taught to fear the danger of dependency. We're taught to practice the virtue of self-reliance. And we live in a time, tell me if this isn't true, we live in a time where it's possible to pursue self-reliance like never before. Independence, isolation. Thanks to technology, we can work from home. Stream TV and movies and books and every other thing, buy what we need, have it delivered to our front door. Literally not have to leave the house for weeks. And some people do. The interesting thing, though, because this experiment has been going on for a minute, it was kind of forced upon us by COVID, but it's not turning out the way that people thought. Even people who loved the idea are beginning to realize we're not intended, we're not constructed to live that way. Jenny Allen, who's a friend of a friend, wrote a book called Find Your People. And she says, we spend our evenings and weekends talked into our little residences with our little family or our roommates or alone, staring at our little screens. We make dinner for just us and never want to trouble our neighbors for anything. We fill a small little crevice called home with everything we could possibly need and keep our doors locked tight and we feel all safe and sound. But we've completely cut ourselves off from people outside our little self-protective world. We may feel comfortable and safe and independent and entertained, but we also feel completely sad. Because we're not intended to live like that. We're made for community and connection. We crave meaningful, authentic relationships. Another author puts it this way, we want to belong, we want to experience a sense of being at home. 
And that longing comes from a real place. It comes from a good place. It comes from a Jesus place. We're made in the image of God. God is community, and God's plan for us is community. Jesus came to reconcile lost sinners to himself as a, as a community. And he came to reconcile lost sinners to each other. Wednesday night, folks, is that not everything we've been studying in Isaiah? In the kingdom, Jesus takes a broken, fractured, hostile world and brings it together, united under the lordship of King Jesus. But we don't have to wait. The kingdom of God today is in us. That, that work, that unification that, that's underway today, or it's supposed to be, Ephesians 2. Paul says, we're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. How do we worship? We trade isolation for community. But let's go a little deeper with this one. We need to, we need to, to be careful that we don't just talk about what, we also talk about how. Trading isolation for community, that's the right thing. But for it to be worship, we need to do it the right way. Worship is a Jesus thing done in a Jesus way. And we won't automatically do community in a Jesus way, in a worshipful way, even if we're looking for it. Why? Because the same technology that wars with our need for community also distorts our understanding of it, our perception of it. Technology has only served to intensify our consumer mentality. We order exactly what we want, and if we don't get it, we send it right back. We go to CVS, we go to Walgreens, we go to Kohl's, and we say, send this back. It's the wrong color, it's the wrong size, I just don't like it. So, so we take that idea, that consumer mindset, and even when we're looking for community, even if we're pursuing it, we can find ourselves thinking of it as something we go out shopping for, trying to find the right combination of, of, of qualities and attributes to meet our needs, to serve us. I was listening to a pastor this week. He said, you know, Christians looking for a church today are a lot like people standing in line at Chipotle. They look for the format that they want. Traditional, like a burrito. Modern, like a salad. Maybe blended, like a bowl. And, 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 and they, they, they talk about, well, this is what kind of meat I want. This kind of meat, not this kind of meat. This is how much rice I want. This much, not that much. This is the color of beans I want. These, not those. I don't want it too spicy. I want these vegetables, definitely not those vegetables. And he says, Christians looking for a church, like people standing in line at Chipotle, are always convinced they're getting a little less than they deserve. The thing we've got to remember, in a real community, in a Christian community especially, we're not shoppers. We're builders. It's not about ordering up a community that fits our needs just so, that fits our plans, that meets our expectations. It's about God letting, God building us into the community that he desires. It's about letting him be the general contractor, which means we don't pick the building site, we don't pick the building style, we don't pick the building materials. We're not the architect, we're not the GC. 
We're the grunts. In fact, because God is the general contractor, we should plan on something being wrong with the building materials. We should plan on the building materials not fitting seamlessly together. Why? God can't afford more than construction grade? <laughs> we're the building materials. And we're warped. We're warped out of true. And, and God uses us that way. Because if we're going to put God's, listen, if we're going to put God's ministry of reconciliation on display, the communities that he calls us to are going to involve some degree of reconciliation. There's going to be reconciliation across generations, reconciliation across classes, across cultures, reconciliation between liberal and conservative. Reconciliation of stylistic differences, personal preferences. The kind of differences that the world says are reasons to quit. Reasons to bail and look somewhere else. I read an article a while ago. I couldn't find it, but, but the phrase I remember from it is that we live in a golden age of bailing. Because the same technology that makes it easy to text and message and, and set plans makes it even easier to cancel plans. Click. <laughs> Can't make it. Got a better offer. And we, we, we carry that attitude. We, we, we take that approach in all, all, all aspects of our lives. Something isn't comfortable, doesn't fit, we don't vibe with it. Bail, keep looking. Find what you're looking for somewhere else. There's something out there for us, something that is a better fit for us, something that looks like us, something easier. I'm not saying God doesn't call people to places. He does. I'm not saying God doesn't call people to new places. He does. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm talking about trying to order up community that's safe and easy and instantly comfortable like ordering a burrito. Not that much sour cream. We're not shoppers, we're builders. We're builders and we're the ones being built. And building takes work, building takes time. Building costs. It takes an investment of, of love and support and compassion and attention and more than anything, grace and forgiveness. Jenny Allen again, our relationships are the greatest gifts we have on earth. And simultaneously the most difficult parts about being alive but we're never more like Jesus when we embrace that. When, when we accept and we embrace that difficulty and we pursue community anyway with the messy, frustrating, irrational, weird people God calls us to. We're never more like Jesus than we enter a community that we know we can tell is going to involve giving and receiving grace forgiving and asking for forgiveness because that's how God builds his church. That's how he builds us up as his church. Third point. Third exchange Paul's encouraging us to make this morning. We get started verse six. Having then gifts differ according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. And he goes on to talk about prophecy and exhortation and giving and so forth. I, he's not intending this to be an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. 
some of you know, I don't think that there is an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts in the Bible. And, and, it, and it's definitely not his point here. His point here is that having whatever gifts we have, Scripture says that God distributes spiritual gifts severally according to his perfect will. Whatever gifts he's given us, Paul just told us, let's, let's decide we're going to use them. Let's decide that we're going to make them available to love and serve one another. That's why God gave them to us. And let's make them available freely and resist the temptation to restrict them to places and times that we think are convenient. Put this another way. Verse 6, Paul's exhorting us to be servants who say, here I am, Lord, use me, rather than volunteers who say, let me check my schedule. Now, what, what would I be doing? And who would I be doing that with? Okay, and for how long? I don't, I don't mean to sound snotty. Okay, I sounded a little snotty. Look, we're all busy. We've all got schedules to manage. We've all got commitments to work around. And, and that's nothing but true. But all that being said, there's still a difference there's, 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 a, there's, there's a distinction we can all acknowledge between volunteering and serving. And the only, all we have to do to see that difference is to look at Jesus, who didn't come to be served, but came to serve. Jesus, who says in Luke 17, which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to that servant when he's come in from the field, eh, come sit down and eat. Will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me? until I'm done eating and drinking, and afterwards, and then it'll be your turn to eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I don't think so. So likewise, you, when you've done all of those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We've done what was our duty to do. It's not the first time Paul has pointed at this idea in Romans. Romans 6.18, he said, we've been freed from our slavery to sin so that we get to choose slavery to righteousness. We're slaves by choice. We're bondservants to Jesus. We talked about that last week. And the measure of a servant, you know this, the measure of a servant is how you respond when serving costs. I heard a message on giving once. It was a, that doesn't matter. I heard a message in giving once. <laughs> and and, and, and the, guy's, the guy's whole framework was, are you tipping or tithing? Are you giving by, yuck, but he was pointing at something real. He was asking, are you giving by faith? Are you giving out of obedience? Or are you giving what you know that you can spare? Are you giving your loose change? Same idea here. To volunteer is to give the time you know that you can spare. To serve is to give the time you know will cost. And I'm not knocking volunteerism. There's a lot of organizations that depend on it. I'm just saying it's not worship. I won't offer to the Lord, David said, I won't offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. 2 Samuel 24, 24. That's the difference between the servant and the volunteer. The servant pays to serve, pays in time, pays in energy, pays in opportunity, pays in sleep. The servant pays to serve. The volunteer gets paid, not with money, 
but the volunteer is getting paid. Google volunteer opportunities and the first 20 pages will have a list of how volunteering has many benefits. Self-confidence, satisfaction, practice existing skills, learn new skills, make friends, cultivate a network, build your resume. The, the point is, is that volunteers get paid. Servants serve. And, 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 and the two activities can look really similar, especially from a distance. Again, the way to differentiate, watch how someone responds to adversity. Watch what happens when it costs. Because the volunteer will weigh the cost while the servant pays the cost. The volunteer will say, well, I guess I've got to. And the servant says, hey, I get to. The volunteer wants to do what they're good at or what they want to get good at. The servant wants what's good to get done. The volunteer wants to be comfortable. The servant expects to be stretched, knowing that that cultivates dependency, and that's how Jesus served, in a place of abject dependency in prayer. The volunteer wants praise. That's how, part of how the volunteer gets paid by told that, that they're doing something well, by being told that they're valuable. The servant wants feedback. Hey, here's what I like, here's what I wish were different, because there's no ego in ministry, and feedback is how we grow in our gifts. The volunteer runs from conflict. This is maybe the clearest indication. I'm going to stay away from that person. i got to get out of this ministry. Maybe I'll just leave the church, because I'm not getting paid. This isn't worth it. The servant responds to conflict seizes an opportunity to grow in grace and unity because that's what we're here to do. Volunteers conform to this world. They've got a, 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 a scarcity mentality. The more I give, the less I have. And so I've I got to restrict my service to what I think I can spare, to what I think that I'll get back. The volunteer is conformed. The servant is transformed. They've been reprogrammed with an abundance mentality. They know, they understand, we can't outgive God. So I'm going to set my default to availability. God, you gave me this gift. You tell me where and when and how and with whom you want to use it. Here it is, Lord. Put me where you want me to be because it's all for your glory. And because that's worship. And that's what we're talking about this morning with all three of these points. As, as Grayson and Anna come back up, with all three of these points, we're talking about worship, trading ambition for humility, putting the spotlight on Jesus instead of me. That's worship. Trading isolation for community, choosing to be a builder rather than a shopper, knowing it's going to be messy. That's worship. Trading restriction for availability, giving God dominion over our time and our talents rather than just tossing scraps, leftovers, because that's worship. Lord, what does that look like for me? What does that look like for each of us? You've given us three examples, three exchanges, and many more to come as we continue in your word. What's my takeaway from this, Lord? What trade would you have me make? What replacement are you longing for in my heart? What real estate in my mind is, is still under the old 
zoning, the old building code. What needs to be teared down so that you can build, Lord? Would you speak to me? Would you speak to all of us?